0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Revelation 9, beginning in verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. And in your outline you should see Westminster Confession of Faith 25.6. Back in the 1640s, our predecessors in the faith set this down as their belief, their belief um, with respect to the teaching of the scriptures, and really the, the unified faith and belief of all of Protestantism with respect to its great enemy in this world There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. As I mentioned, this was formerly the belief of All Protestants, with very few exceptions. And now, as I mentioned last week, next to no one thinks this to be the case. As a matter of fact, even the Presbyterians became so ashamed of their own standards that they crossed out everything after thereof. So the article simply ended with, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof. Uh, omitting the specification that the Pope was the Antichrist that had been prophesied in the Scripture. Whatever you might think of the doctrine, uh, I, I think that we do need to acknowledge once again and remember the importance of sound views on this matter, given the teaching of the Scripture about it. If this is true, but ignored, we ignore our greatest earthly enemy. Revealed to us in the scripture, not just one time, but a great handful of times, and sometimes at great length. A dangerous thing indeed to ignore one's enemies. There's a bit of old human wisdom Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. You've probably heard this this saying. What folly to ignore your enemy, to take no notice of him and his actions. But also, if this is true, yet ignored, we are ignoring one of the great explanations. A revealed explanation as to why we have all of this unrest and misery in the world. In other words, one of the great reasons for unrest and uh, and misery in the world is the rise of anti-Christianism up in its midst. We'll talk about that some more as we uh, progress. But it's one of the great causes of the Lord's controversy with the world of men. The fact that this anti-Christianism has now overspread the globe. And I might say that if this is true but ignored... It requires a thorough and energetic defense, and it needs to be published again. But I want you to consider something about the devil's devices. As I said, once upon a time, all Protestants believed this, and there was a common hermeneutical approach to the Bible that that undergirded it. They didn't just make this up. They believed that the scriptures taught it. And designated the bishop of Rome as the great uh, offender in this business. Um, so there was a common, um, th- there was a common underlying exegesis. The Jesuits, the Pope's uh, probably most energetic defenders, but the Jesuits uh, offered counter interpretations. They offered a form of, of preterism that said, "No, your great enemy is actually in the past." It was Nero. They also offered futurism. Same, same Jesuits. They don't care how you interpret these things, just as long as it's not the Pope. But then they offered futurism. Your great enemy's not here yet. But do you see the subtlety of the serpent in all of this? All of it purposefully construed to take us off our guard. We think of our enemy as being far away. And even a lot of the idealism that's pervading reformed circles now, the idea that Revelation doesn't have a specific historical fulfillment, but really any enemy of the church can be this beast and so on. Well, there isn't any great enemy, just a little of this and a little of that and so on. I do believe the whisper of the evil one and the subtlety of the serpent is in all of this because all of it seems purposefully construed to tell you your enemy's not here and you are not in danger. As I mentioned last week, I, I can't undertake a full defense of this article. Some time ago, I, I did it in a, a short series of sermons called uh, Many Antichrists? Question mark? A- in five sermons, but... Here at the end of Revelation chapter 9, we have at least some of the exegetical foundations for the old Protestant doctrine. And it's very important for us, the scriptures do warn that there was a great apostasy coming. You do understand that worldlings do not apostatize. But they said that a great, a particular great apostasy was coming that it would overspread the church. This is, this is revealed in the scripture. And so that Christians beforehand were to be getting prepared. And it was left in holy writ. So that we in after ages would always be able to identify its presence in our midst. And then look to spiritual self-defense. 2nd uh, and 3rd John speaks uh, much of these things. 2nd John in particular. Um One of the things that I could not do in the the short sermon series, Many Antichrists, was talk very much about uh, John's revelation and how it identifies uh, the Roman bishop as being the Antichrist. But now as we're going through Revelation, we have time to stop from time to time and observe the very particular designation that it provides for us. So here, in some ways, we're completing work that we started um, uh, some time ago. So a couple of things, uh, some data points from, from revelation helping us to identify the apostasy. Um, now, first of all, I, and I'm going to do, I'm going to do a very short summary of where we have been in revelation up to this point. And we have been at such great lengths and such pains in this because i I have wanted to convince you that the right interpretation uh, of revelation is not grounded on opinion. But once again, grammatical historical exegesis, and inasmuch as these are prophecies applying to specific historical events. in other words, you can compare the scriptures and the prophecy to the historical events just like you do in all the rest of the prophecy of scripture. Like you read Daniel, you read about the four kingdoms and the four beasts, and you line them up with history. This is Babylon, this is Persia, this is Greece, this is Rome, and so on. You know how we do that. Revelation's not different; it's not special. We do the same sort of exegetical work. Now, first, remember, Revelation says that um, the first verse says this is an apokalypsis in Greek a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not a concealing. And part of what it is doing for us is revealing the apostasy that would come up in the midst of the church. Uh, reveal to us our enemy that might otherwise be hidden from our eyes. It's not a covering. It's not a concealing. It, it's an unveiling. And if you don't understand that, you haven't understood the first rev- the the first article, the first teaching of the book. It is an unveiling. Now remember, as John begins, uh, the Lord Jesus gives him a threefold outline. Write the things that you have seen. That was his vision of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. And all of this is found in Revelation one nineteen. Write the things that are the condition of the seven churches in Asia Minor, Revelation 2 and 3. And then write the things after those. And all of this is declared in chapter 1 to be a prophecy of things that must shortly come to pass. And right away, the futurism, the, the Jesuit tool to convince you that your enemy's not here yet, and he might not show up for a long time, so don't worry. We're fine. Continue in the Roman church, and so on. Enemies enemy's not showed up yet. If shortly <coughs> can mean two millennia or more, it doesn't mean anything. You understand that, right? So futurism is ruled out in the first three verses of the book. Uh, this, was going, this was something, whereas Daniel's book had been closed, sh- close these things up, Daniel, because their fulfillment is not for many days. For John, the fulfillment is now. It's at hand. The history of the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom, is going to be in its long unfolding now. But it's at hand, not, not something at a distance. Remember where John is. We can't understand anything if we don't understand his position in the vision. And remember, for our purposes today, he's standing at the door of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is is an image of the church. It's external and visible component, the courtyard, and it's uh, internal spiritual life, the holy place. John can turn and look at either place. But spread out around Mount Zion is the Roman world. And the things that happen on that landscape are the things that are happening to you and in the Roman world. Again, if, if on that very day you had stood up on Mount Zion and you looked out, what were you looking at? You're looking at Roman territory. This is the Roman world, not now. So with the breaking of the first seal, I don't know if you remember it, we found exactly what we expected to find by careful exegesis of the, of the first three chapters, and even chapter four and five and the, um, the apocalyptic visionary scenery. We found a prophecy concerning the Nervan dynasty. You remember the, during John's time, in the time of Domitian, as he's exiled on Patmos, the empire's in decline. The barbarians have already breached the frontier. We normally associate that with 400 years later. Barbarians have breached the frontier. The empire's in trouble, but suddenly there is a revival. And we can't do all of this in detail, but suddenly the horse, representative of Rome, uh, associated with Mars, is white. Images of victory, strength, power, emperor sitting upon it with the laurel, the the image of the victorious general, the very image that they liked to use at the time, but the Cretan bow. You remember Nerva and his descendants, for the better part of a hundred years, were Cretans. And that was unique. So if you wanted something to, to differentiate that line from all of the other lines, Nerva was the successor of Domitian. These are the things that must shortly come to pass. You You understand that? And then we went through that steady succession. There was that that, uh, time of good emperors up to the time of Commodus. And then the generals began to compete to seize the reins of the empire. And so now we find the horse bathed in blood. It is red. It is ruddy. Roman short sword in his hand. Civil war. Almost constant civil war in the empire. That problem is compounded by the next image, which is the provincial governors. The horse has now gone black. The provincial gover- governors and their wicked taxation has broken the strength of agriculture, and now the empire is well nigh unto well into perishing. You have war, and now you have famine. Uh, in the fourth, the breaking of the fourth seal, it's as if death itself rides upon the horse, and the horse itself looks deathly, corpse-like. Because now all of these factors have come together. War, famine, pestilence, and there are great plagues throughout the Roman world. You remember we we read Cyprian, how he he talked about how the whole world seemed to be eaten up with death and how entire towns were being depopulated with the pestilence. And these things frequently come together. Uh, When war comes, frequently agriculture is destroyed. When people don't have enough to eat, they become more vulnerable to disease, and one calamity follows uh, upon another. Uh, Right after this, and right before the Constantinian Revolution, we really had the great age of the martyrs, the Diocletian persecutions. This is, as it were, the swan song of pagan Rome. Diocletian puts uh, the people of God to steady and sustained violent persecution Uh, they cry out to God for uh, deliverance and so you've got the image of the martyrs underneath the uh, altar where you would find the blood and the ashes of uh, the sacrifices and then finally with the breaking of the sixth seal things change it's the Constantinian revolution which at the time seemed to be like the very return of Jesus Christ we talked about this last week in the Exodus sermons, the judgment ordeals that, that God reveals, uses over and over again in history as images and types of the final judgment, that, this was just like that. Constantine goes out riding under the banner of Christ. Licinius rides against him under the banner of Jupiter. Uh, uh, Christ throws down all of his enemies, human and imaginary gods, God's people are delivered from this terrible persecution. Their enemies put down uh, a lively type and image of the end of things. But you remember how shocked we were to turn the page and to find the four destroying angels now menacing the Roman world. So here, the Roman Empire has been largely Christianized, and yet the Lord is displeased. What happened? You remember, after the Constantinian Revolution, you had the Constantinian Settlement. And with the settlement, suddenly it became politically, economically, and socially advantageous to join the church. So worldly-minded men begin to join en masse. But that doesn't mean that they were converted. And so you got the, the imagery of the tribes, where probably only one in 50 is converted. So the Israel of God, the church, is thickly sown with tares. People who um, profess the true religion, but the root of true religion is absent in them. And, of course, worldly-minded men do what worldly-minded men do. They, cannot, uh, they don't have spiritual eyes to see a spiritual Christ and spiritual ordinances, so they begin to paganize Christianity. They fashioned it after the ordinances that they had known and loved for generations in keeping with their own pagan ancestry. And this is when you begin to have not only open idolatry in the church, they begin to change the ordinances, more outward pomp, more outward uh, grandeur, things that appeal to us as fleshly men when preaching and praying really don't do it for us. We don't have spiritual senses to see and hear Christ in these things. We want a show. So give us outfits and censors and grand music and so on so that we can have a show for our flesh. This is what worldly-minded men do when the ordinances of Christ come into their hand. So the ordinances begin to change and you have the First bit of anti Christianism. And you remember, this is not in the first instance against Christ, but in Greek it means to replace him, to push him out of the way, and to put something else in his seat, something else in his role, something else in his office. And the first thing that was done in this way was baptism. And we had allusions to baptism in Revelation chapter 7. Now, baptism itself communicates grace. So, what have we need of Christ? When baptism can save us. This is the first bit. Now the baptism is communicating grace, not Christ. We've got the baptism. And by easy extension, the priest becomes an antichrist because he administers the sacrament. And the church that authorizes him to do so. Uh, All of these become replacement Christs. Things that come and fill up his room, come and fill up his stead. However, this is the same era and age of the rise of the Augustinian theology and a great comfort given to the people of God in spite of this great apostasy. And mark it, this is the beginning of it when uh, the church was thickly sown with these tares. This is the beginning of the great apostasy. Um, But the Lord assures his people that his elect are sealed and that they will be protected from all actual spiritual harm and they will persevere to the end the two great Augustinian doctrines were right on pace just the right time just the right place for the fulfillment of these uh, prophecies Uh, the seventh seal is broken and before we leave the fourth century so the late 300s we get uh, a great and rapid progress of this anti-Christianism in the cult of the martyrs. The martyrs for centuries already had been something like spiritual superstars in the church. And understandably, these were people who had been (coughs) single-minded in their devotion to Christ and had really given themselves completely for him and for his cause. But uh, there's more than a little shift between that idea and They acted in an exemplary fashion, let us imitate them and follow them in this great uh, conduct. But they began to look to them as mediators. They began to pray to them as intercessors between them and Christ. Do you see? Christ is no longer the mediator between God and men, but rather he needs a mediator between him and man. And that was the departed saints and martyrs. It was the old hero worship of the pagans, as we, as we talked about uh, last week. And so at the beginning of Revelation chapter 8, what did we see but a provoked mediator who is being displaced and he pours out his judgments upon the Roman world. Four trumpets of war sound against the Western Roman Empire as it is worn out by the barbarian invasions until there is no government left. And the span of that is, is relatively brief compared to what happened in the East. The Eastern Christians, vexed by all of the same idolatry and anti-Christianism, simply watched the judgments in the West, not as much affected by them, and certainly not penitent. Then it was the East turn, and the West responded the same way. They watched, but they did not repent. The Fifth and the Sixth War trumpets sound against that Roman territory by the Euphrates, the East, And they are worn out by the Islamic invasions until their government is destroyed. But that, when you look at the scope of the six trumpets, takes a thousand years. Uh, from, From the 5th century to the 15th century, these judgments were wearing out the Christian world, at least the professing Christian world. And the response of our text now coming to the end of it was, for all of these judgments, they... Repented not. As we observed last week, now I, I want you to, now just stop right there. And I do have to rely upon our, our our former studies for full justification of what I've just done in about 10 minutes time. But it's the right time, isn't it? And the right place. And there hasn't been any strange break or interruption in the series of visions. We've been able to follow it straight on out with... Uh, uh, full and convincing proofs and demonstrations from history concerning the fulfillment of this these very images. And when we come to Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, this is exactly what we find. So the eastern third of the empire has now been destroyed by the Turks. Government has finally been taken away from Constantinople. But the rest of the men that were not killed or destroyed in this way, now our vision is shifting back to the West, are said to not to not be moved to repentance, and they worship not properly devils, if you remember last week, but demons. This is the old language of paganism for imaginary gods, the vain imaginary gods of the pagans. And this is exactly what the Romanists did. And I, I mentioned to you the, the Parthenon, Uh, It's such a great emblem of what happened between paganism and Romanism. You've got this old pagan temple with all of its old pagan idols in it. And the Romanists simply take it and they plaster Christian names on everything. But it's the same old paganism and the same old worship of deified (laughs) heroes. Formerly mortal, now dead. And now they have become demigods to us. We worship them as mediators to make intercession for us with the greater gods. This is full paganism having intruded into uh, the Christian church. The text also makes it clear that this is what they were doing beforehand. And then they didn't repent of it. So what does that mean about afterwards? They kept doing it. And it continues on to the present day. So in this one verse, in some ways, you get more than a thousand year span of history to the present day, 1500 year span of history. And interestingly enough, not just verse 20, and all you need to do to see the fulfillment of the latter part of this prophecy concerning the idols of gold, silver, brass and stone is visit a Catholic church. It's all you need to do. Go. Look around and you will see men, women, and children fall down on their faces in front of these very things that cannot see, hear, or speak. But they will fall down in front of these things and pray to these things as replacement mediators. Little flock, this is anti-Christianism. That's what it means. That's what it means. But then if you look at verse 21 and all of the immorality that's referenced there, Theft, murder, and whatnot. That's what provoked the Reformation in the first place. There had been reform movements within the Roman church for a long time before Luther's because Rome was an open sewer, morally speaking. And uh, the seed of religion remains even in fallen men. His conscience was crying out against it. This isn't true religion. This is awful. Our clerics who profess celibacy have brothels devoted to them. Luther went thinking he was going to visit Holy Rome. You know how religious he was as a monk. I'm going to Holy Rome. This is the holy city. This is the most godly place on earth. He came back dejected. I borrowed that expression from him. He told his father confessor, Stop it, it's a sewer. It's awful. They sell and peddle religion. They sell and peddle their bodies. There's, um, you know, vicious animosity as com- clergy compete with one another and step on one another like crabs in a bucket, trying to get to the top. said, so it's awful. It's awful. There's something wrong, and the remains of conscience were crying out against it. And they Romanists tried to reform it, and they tried to reform it, and they tried to reform it. But ultimately, they repented not. And you can consider, even up to our own day, and this isn't new, it's not like it went quiet and then came back again. The immorality in the clergy is still regular news to the present day. Because they have not repented of these things, and they won't turn them over to the magistrate for discipline. What do they do? They hide it. We will deal with it. We will deal with it. We will deal with it. They're not penitent. So and we'll look at some more express marks in the book identifying that the apostasy that was expected is the Roman apostasy. Some of them are as clear as the noonday sun, like, well, this is the fourth beast as it's described in Daniel. The the beast is Rome. If we know that from from Daniel's prophecy, then we know it here. And then when that same beast is described in, in Revelation chapter 17 as the greatest city of the earth, there can be no doubt. What greater city was there than the Roman city? So the scriptures are filling us up with markers so that we would not mistake this. If I might say so, what a what a travesty that this important doctrine has been taken away from us. Now we're to the point, there was a generation that started to find it distasteful, you know, in our politically correct society. It just doesn't sound very loving to say, the beast, there he is. Flee, run from these these things. It doesn't sound very loving to say to say these sorts of things. Um, so everything in our politically correct culture is against it. But nobody even knows. Nobody even remembers that once upon a time all Protestants believed this, and it didn't matter if you were if you were a Lutheran or a Dutch Reformed, or a Scottish Presbyterian, an English Puritan, or even an Anglican. They all agreed about these things, all identified uh, the great earthly enemy. I wanted to do just a little bit more work, and really the whole purpose for this, this sermon was to begin to draw some of these threads together. We need to look at First Timothy chapter 4, uh, this cannot be omitted given this this reference to the worshiping of the daimons in uh, revelation 9:20 but before we look at 1 timothy 4 i want to look at 2 thessalonians chapter 2 so if you'll turn there with me we'll just look at the first four verses Now this is, um, you know, dating can be a tricky thing, but these two little Thessalonian epistles might very well be the first New Testament scriptures written, even before the Gospels, probably coming from the mid-40s or so. And this was the teaching of the apostle in the mid-40s concerning a coming apostasy. He doesn't want the Thessalonian Christians to be ignorant concerning it, but he wants them to be prepared, watchful. So begin with verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Context here is very important. Uh, the Thessalonian Christians were at this point fretful that the day of the Lord was either immediately at hand or already past. So there's some confusion. They're expecting the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're concerned that it's either immediately at hand or it's already passed them by. And Paul's telling, telling them why he's writing about this. He does not want them to be disturbed by such thoughts. He doesn't want them to be fretful. So he's going to remind them about a doctrine that he taught while he was in their midst concerning future things. So verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. So I want you to notice, basically he's saying, it's not time yet, beloved. Don't be disturbed. Don't be disquieted in your minds. You know that some things have to come first. And first of all, the apostasy must come. Uh, The King James translation says here, a falling away. Quite literally in the Greek, it has the definite article, hey, the apostasia. Even you can provide a translation for that. (laughs) That day shall not come except the apostasy come first. The apostasy, some particular great one. And then he says, and that man of sin. Once again, ha, definite article. The, anthropos, the man, the man. So we're not just looking for any man, not just any apostate, but there's some one particular great figure that is in view. Uh, That man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And again, you get the definite article, not just any son of perdition like Judas, but the son of perdition. A couple of things I want you to notice. And this is more than just the definite article on the apostasy, although it's it's suggestive all by itself. A particular apostasy must be in view or he can't bring them comfort. Because then they could always just reply, we've already seen brethren fall away. <clears throat> You've seen brethren fall away, right? It can't just be any apostasy, or else they're not going to be comforted. So the context uh, necessitates that some one particular great and noteworthy apostasy is in view. This is the subject of New Testament prophecy, which must certainly be fulfilled, and we, we could also extend this to the, the person in view. Well, before doing that, just real quick. Um, the, the location is given. It's within the church. That's what an apostasy is. And that's why I think the, the translation is important. So where is this going to happen? It's not worldlings falling away from something they never embraced. There's going to be a, an apostasy within the church So this automatically excludes all of those interpretations that assign this to political leaders. It's not about them. This happens in the midst of the church. And then the person that's in view, once again, must be a particular personage, or else it's not going to bring any comfort. If it's just any man of sin, any son of perdition, any apostate, they're not going to be able to look to his appearance as a marker Uh, and know that the the final things are going to come after that, you see? This has to be some sort of a definite marker in their minds. And then this apostate, this great apostate, this particular apostate, is further described in verse 4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, Showing himself that he is God. So here we get a further description of the leader. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. And if I could just cite Edwards. Edwards says, who in the history of the world has ever done this like the Roman Catholic Pope? If prophecy has a fulfillment at all, who has ever done this? Who would be a more particular? And you say, well, what do you mean? He calls himself the vicar of Christ. He stands in the place of Christ. He claims to himself uh, infallibility. When he speaks in his office, he speaks infallibly. It's the same as scripture, the same as Christ speaking from heaven. And he can give you an indulgence to save your soul, or he can excommunicate you and effectually damn your soul. Who in the history of the world has ever taken divine prerogatives to himself? Civil rulers, you will say, "I'm going to kill your body. I'm going to destroy you." Who's ever put themselves in the place of God? The way that this office bearer has put himself in the place of God, and again, the location within the temple, within the church of uh, the living God is, um, and some even think when it says he exalts himself above all that is called God, uh, even magistrates and great dignitaries might be in that are sometimes called gods. In, in the scripture, um, Psalm 82, for example. But once again, uh, the Pope did this, where he proclaimed himself to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and that all civil rulers are actually subordinate to him. So some interpreters take he exalts himself all above all that is called God as being civil rulers, or all that is worshipped as being God himself. He sets himself above all these things. Quite literally, the word is not used here, but in Greek, you could give him the title antitheos. He's put himself in the place of God, in the place of God. Antichristos would be in the place of Christ. So this was Paul's teaching in the mid 40s AD about a particular coming great apostasy. And that's very important background for his teaching to Timothy uh, two decades later in the mid-sixties. So turn with me, if you will, to First Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly. This has been one of my points. Do you know what expressly means? It means clearly. Um, In other words, these prophecies concerning things that would happen are not locked up, they're not sealed, they're not impossible to understand. For generations and generations, Protestants did understand them. Um, But the Spirit is speaking expressly, distinctly, clearly, about things that are to be understood. And about things that we need to know, so there's a special and clear object here in the Spirit's teaching that in the latter times some shall depart. The Greek verb there is the same is the same uh, uh, word from which we get apostatize. You see the relationship to Second Thessalonians. So in the latter days some shall apostatize and fall away from the faith. Now note this very carefully. Giving heed to seducing spirits, um, and I just can say that seducing spirits, interestingly enough, can, can refer either to like demonic presences or or even men. Um, I do believe that John, for example, in First John chapter four, beginning at verse one, uses uh, "try the spirits to see whether they be of God." He applies very directly to false teachers. So uh, it seems to be that he'll refer to the teachers uh, by the language of that which animates them. Uh, The rhetorical figure is called metonymy, but it's um, uh, in some ways the teachers and their teaching is just an effect of a deeper cause. And the deeper cause is being referred to. um, The language of the deeper cause is used in place of the effect itself. But you've got these deceiving spirits, which could be men or demons... And doctrines of diamonds, once again, doctrines of demons. Remember, the primary definition for this is the imaginary gods of the heathen. That there would be a teaching uh, in the midst of this apostasy. That happens in the church, right? Apostasy, you don't fall away if you're already outside, the falling away is within the church, and that in the midst of the church, a doctrine concerning vain, imaginary, false gods would arise. Uh, just as, we, and this is the whole reason I brought this up, because I do believe in the very same language, uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, and First Timothy chapter 4 are teaching about the very same thing. And are telling us to uh, be alert to the rise of this teaching in the midst of this church, this church. Deified hero worship. Uh, So follow on with me. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So they're falling away because they're listening to these things. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. Um, Now those that are speaking lies in hypocrisy here are actually not those that are falling away. Uh, It's rather attributed to the deceiving spirits. Okay, that's clearer in the Greek than it is here, but it's definitely referring back to the deceiving spirits and not those who are falling away. So these deceiving spirits speak lies and hypocrisy, another indication that the deceiving spirits are men, right? Because there's a, there's a hypocrisy, which is a sin you normally associate with human beings. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And so part of this great uh, apostasy would be the old Greek dualism. Spirit is good, matter is bad. And so therefore, if you can do without marriage, because that's got to do with bodily appetites, then you're more holy. And if you fast often, you are more holy, you're denying the appetites of the body and so on. And of course... This has been emblematically fulfilled in Romanism in her monks, in her clergy, the abstaining uh, from, from marriage, the claim that you're more spiritual if you do so. It's just the old Greek, the old Greek dualism. And, you know, we don't eat meat on Fridays and all of these sorts of things. These things are famous throughout the world. My point is the fulfillment of this has not been hidden in a closet he took to himself the title of Antichrist. This is not hard. It's, it's like a strange infatuation and bewilderment to set upon the people of God where we've lost sight of our enemy. But all of the markers are there, are, are, are right there. This whole Greek dualism was already at work in Timothy's time, but it would have its full flowering in the Roman system and her monks. Verse 4, For every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. And interestingly enough, Paul says if you, if you warn the brethren and put them in remembrance of these things, you're a good minister this is a ministerial duty that has been so grossly neglected that no one even knows who the enemy is or how to identify him or but here people will hear hear the sermon some may be present people will hear it online they'll think it's extreme and everything else but i have this consolation generally speaking i don't think i'm very extreme in anything except maybe some of my personal study habits or something like that but but i tend to be of moderate views and you know I hear things on radio and conspiracy theories I, I don't hey I, I don't know you know <laughs> whatever sort of moderate that way um, but if people listen to this and I think I'm a crackpot I, I have this consolation that Christ says that's good ministry if they'll acknowledge the enemy and take to themselves, then you've really helped them. But if they won't, if I might borrow the word of Ezekiel, their blood's on their own head. But let, let my criers cry out against this great ungodliness, because it is dangerous. And we'll come to this in just a moment. But he goes on and he says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables. Romanism is full of that as well if you think about the stories that they tell about their martyrs and, and whatnot. And exercise thyself rather unto godliness for bodily exercise profiteth little. That doesn't, that doesn't mean your, your crunches or your walks. He's, he's talking about um, bodily exercises in religion. Stand, sit, kneel, fast and, and so on. That's not what religion is about falling down in front of these statues and all of these, this sort of thing. Bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So, just to review what we have here, start to draw the, the exegetical foundations together. The coming apostasy is an express or explicit teaching of the Spirit. I didn't make it up, Right? The Spirit speaketh expressly, that is clearly, distinctly concerning these things. I'm not making it up. It's not just any apostasy. Of course, people have fallen away from the faith in all sorts of ways. This this apostasy has distinctive characteristics, not just any apostasy, it is the apostasy. And you can use it as a temporal marker to determine other things on the prophetic calendar. There are other things that will stand in a temporal relationship before and after it. The great apostasy in sixty-four A.D. was still future, although Timothy did have duties with respect to it even at that time. His duty was to keep people mindful before it sh- before it did show up, and to teach them to drive it into them that religion does not consist in bodily exercises. And of course, as Timothy was ministering among. Uh, converts from paganism, they would tend to think of religion in that way. Uh, We go to these places, we do these things, we stand, sit, nail, we fall down, we have a party, you know, all these parts of pagan worship. Religion does not consist in these bodily exercises, but in true godliness. The elements of the apostasy were already at work in the apostles' time. That's one of the reasons why the the uh, warning had to be sounded early. And some distinctive markers of it. One of the hallmarks of the apostasy is deception. We couldn't do all of this, but Second uh, John, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the, the emphasis upon deception throughout uh, is great. Another reason why we need to be on our guard. It's one of the hallmarks of this is its ability to beguile the mind. I've sometimes called Romanism the perfect religion of fallen man. Very attractive to to fallen man. The old Greek dualism would be part of this great deception. The idea that spirit is good and matter is bad. This has also been a hallmark of Romanism as it was of um, some of the pagan philosophy and the Gnosticism of the time. There would be a denial of the goodness of bodily things. And there would be doctrines concerning demons, the vain imaginary gods. Now, interestingly enough, this is this this has had a manifold fulfillment. In um, there was a temptation. You remember we looked at First Corinthians chapter ten, Revelation chapters two and three. One of the temptation for Christian people at the time. Uh, Because the only place you could get meat was frequently at the idol temples was to go and gather your meat from the idol temples, consoling yourself that, well, you know, these are false gods, imaginary. They're not really anything at all. And so the apostles warn about participating in these idol temples and their their worship. So uh, there was an allure to demon tables at the time. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Revelation 2 and 3. Some were succumbing to this sin. We learned that from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The worship of demons was present among the Gnostic sect. You remember to get to heaven, you needed a Gnostic teacher to give you the secret knowledge so that you could get back to God. But in order to get back to God, what you had to do was pass through these angelic realms. They called them eons. And at each one of these realms, you would meet an angelic being called an eon, that you'd have to give some like a secret password to, and then he would let you pass, so that you have the worshiping of these uh, of these um, demons, and of course it's been present in Romanism from from the past to the present day. So you ask, is it legitimate to apply this to Rome? Is this is this hate mongering? I mean, what are you doing? Why would you say all of these things? Let me just set out a couple of propositions to you. And I think that the conclusion is very, very clear. First, the prophesied apostasy was still future with respect to Timothy. It hadn't had its full flowering yet, not even in Gnosticism. Second, we would expect this prophecy being inspired to have a fulfillment. And that is so important. Almost all expositors in the present day want to keep pushing these things off into the future. And in that sense, they really have no meaning, no practical application. Everything just keeps being pressed off into the future. But these things have a fulfillment and a connection with the apostolic age. Because they had to raise the warning then, and the ministers had duties to do with respect to it even then. Third, uh, the expected apostasy would involve deceivers, asserting the old Greek dualism, and in particular, uh the abstention from marriage and certain meats at certain times. There would be doctrines of devils, the worshiping of departed heroes, and the assertion that religion consists very much in bodily exercises. Um, so, let me let me go, gather all of this up together. What prophecy was yet future to Timothy, but the leaven of which was already in Timothy's days, which would involve... False teachers forbidding marriage and meats, the worshipping of departed heroes, deceased heroes, as mediators, and placing religion much in bodily exercises. And then in Revelation, associated with the Western Roman Empire already in our, our prophecy, and specifically with the greatest city of the earth before we leave the prophecy. Jonathan Edwards said it like this. He said, if prophecy has any fulfillment at all, I mean, come on, come on. And what are we waiting for as a, as a church? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something. Um, This apostasy and this antichrist that they're waiting for is a figment. It is a delusion that has left us exposed to our real enemy. And that is very dangerous tell you something else. He's never going to come. He's never going to come. The enemy is already present. He's been present for a long time. And he's already been damaging us. And that brings me to the the practical application. Let us not be ignorant of the devil's devices. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Last week we had a a reminder that the devil and the demonic hordes are real; that they are real beings, and they have real animosity against uh, Christ and against the Church of the of the Living God. Second Corinthians chapter two verse ten: To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also; for if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it. For your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now here, uh, Paul is pointing out that if if forgiveness uh, creeps into our midst, it's going to be very destructive to the life of the body. And he says, and so... um, We forgive, we forgive readily, lest Satan should take advantage because we're not ignorant of the way that he moves and does these things. And what is here a statement of fact for him becomes an exhortation for us. We are not to be ignorant of the devil's devices and his designs concerning us. And here, um, so I used to have this impression sometimes when when I was in my philosophy or theology classes, the way some people would play, you know, with with ideas. I can remember sometimes being uh, you know almost wanting to shake somebody and say we're we're not we're not playing word games or making a logical puzzle. We're talking about life and death issues here. And as I talk about um uh, Antichrist, I'm not, I'm not interested in any sort of idle speculation. I don't have any great interest in making a revelation chart or any of these sorts of things. This is not vain speculation about Antichrist, but rather a real enemy who has been for a long time present in, in the midst of us, who is animated by a very real devil, who is intent on doing us very real harm. And not just us, but all of the people of God. Not a small matter greatest earthly enemy. And the prophecy, as it continues, warns us that the people of God, even right now, are entangled and ensnared already to some measure. The Protestant Reformation, and our fathers were greater than us, the Protestant Reformation was not complete. It was a work begun but not finished, and we've regressed since that time. But turn with me to Revelation chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. This is getting pretty close, Revelation 18, beginning at verse 1. This is getting pretty close to the end of things. This is the judgment upon uh, the Roman system. It is imminent as we read these verses. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And has become the habitation of devils. And the hold of every foul spirit. And a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication." And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Now, what seems like a great many years ago, I was in Bristol, Tennessee, or Virginia, depending upon what side of the street you're on. I I don't know which side I was on, actually. And I was sitting there, and I was reading David Steele's commentary on the apocalypse, and I got to his comments on on verse 4. And he said, what can verse 4 mean except that the people of God never fully came out? Or at the very least, at this point, they are still somewhat entangled and need to finish the work of coming out lest we partake of her sins and then become partakers in her plagues, which, as you continue in in Revelation 18, are grievous. I don't know what all of those things mean exactly. I just know that it's frightening and that that system falls into the hands of a very angry and provoked mediator. It's uh, terrifying. So this implies that that Protestants are, are tangled up. And I remember sitting there and reading that Here I am at a coffee shop in Bristol, somewhat enjoying myself, just reading. And it struck me like a thunderclap and it changed my life. Because I thought, we're we're still entangled and we're not seeing it. We're not getting it. But the Lord would have us to come out all the way or these plagues are going to belong to us. This is not a small matter. I'm not just speculating about antichrist. Danger, danger. And the prophecy is that we are entangled. And so we are in danger. And we need to come out. We need to be constantly vigilant about this entanglement. And I'll tell you some things that I I think um, maybe 40 years ago, Reformed people could scarcely imagine, but Rome's gospel in the early 1980s began to make its way into the Reformed churches, which you would think would have justification by faith alone down. But Norman Shepherd said, well, if, if Reformed people could understand my deep covenantal understanding of the gospel, we could reconcile with Rome and bring the church back together. Shepherd knew it. All of his disciples have denied it. But Shepherd knew it. And our seminaries are teaching it and rolling out these ministers one right after another who believe that you enter into the covenant by faith but you stay in by your work, in particular, does this sound familiar, by participating in the sacraments. That was Shepherd's doctrine. Government and worship in all of the Reformed churches is run along Roman principles. You can do whatever you want in the government of the church, as long as it appears useful. You can do whatever you want in the worship of God, if you just have some good reason for doing it. As if there were no king. You remember our our ancient belief has been, this Jerusalem has a king. He's given us a form of government. We're not free to change it. Why would we? Our king is perfect. Our king has given us a form of government. He's commanded it. He speaks in it and through it. He's promised to mediate it. Why would we change it? But embrace it, love it, and love him in these things. In Reformed churches now, the wrong use of the fathers and tradition is just mind-blowing if you i hope this is all the more striking if you know me and know my regard for those that have gone before and have taught us the word of god Um, but to say that calvin said such and such doesn't okay how did calvin teach it from the bible because that was calvin's greatness he taught us doctrine from the bible Not so that we'd simply parrot his words back and forth to one another and just create for ourselves a new tradition that's every bit as noxious as that of the Pharisees. If you tell me that Gillespie believed something, you have my attention. How did Gillespie teach it from the Bible? I've read everything that Gillespie's written, everything, all known works. And I think if I remember Gillespie right, he was teaching me everything from the Bible. Not simply saying, well, I just said so, so you ought to believe it. He taught us from uh, the Bible. I can't omit coming into this season of the year, we're getting ready to go into a very large Protestant remembrance of the Roman demon worship. Which is what? The system of the holy days, where they remember their departed saints and martyrs this great ungodliness that caused Jesus Christ to pour out fury upon the earth for a thousand years, and we're going to say, well, it's okay for us to participate, right? This is all memorials of that demon worship. What are we doing? So when we, when we tell ourselves that, you know, hey, we're not like the, like the Catholics, in principle, almost all of it is now the same, the only difference is most of these little independent churches around here make the pastor the pope. So you got a just a mini one, uh, but governed along the same lines and the same principles. We do whatever we want in government. We do whatever we want in, in worship. He's going to get up and he's going to explain to us his opinions and so on. Um, Protestantism is in is in deep trouble. And we don't raise the alarm as we, we need to be constantly vigilant. And who knows, but that we uh, might have imbibed some of it and have not yet detected it. That's why we need to have our eyes open and be aware concerning these things. And so by way of, of use, just very briefly, let us pray against the devil, his devices, and his designs upon the kingdom of God. Because he does desire to thwart It's advance. And right now, uh, the effect that he's having is, is noteworthy. These are significant setbacks and great dangers to the people of God. Let us pray together.